On this prequel episode, we've got our radio-free album of fan reaction. We're learning about cult classics and previewing The Princess Bride. Hello, and welcome back to this film. It's the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We just wanted to mention before we get started that we're going to be spending this Memorial Day weekend at a brand new Ren Fair. And if you want to see us post some pictures, share our experience, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of the uh, social media, because we're really looking forward to it. And we figured we'd share some of that with all of you. So check out our social media Memorial Day weekend. It's another prequel episode. It's a prequel episode for a movie that we never did a prequel episode for because yes. it was before we yes. did prequel episodes. <laughs> Although I felt like as I was doing research, I knew all the stuff I was finding already. Well, back when we first started, we used to like sprinkle fun facts throughout our Is episodes. Is that what we do did? You remember that? Not yeah. at all. Yeah, that's what we used to do. So that's where some of these, I feel like I remembered them from. Yes. I didn't remember that. We probably that. talked about them during that episode. Wild. Well, we're going to talk about them again, because there was like some of this, I was like, I felt like we talked about this, but we didn't do a <laughs> prequel episode, but it feels like we did. I don't know what's yeah. going on. So, all right. Before we get to The Princess Bride, we have our patron shout outs. We have one new patron this week joining us at the $5 Hugo Award winning level is... Ashley with an I. Thank you, Ashley with an I, uh, for supporting us and getting access at $5 to all of our bonus content. We'll have a no bonus content out in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not the first week of June, probably, but maybe towards the second week of June, we'll have our next bonus content episode, which I don't know if that's been announced yet. Has it? Just for yes. patrons. Has it? Yes. We're talking about Parasite, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. A movie I've been meaning to watch since it came out and still have it. And now I have to. Thank goodness. Because I've been wanting (laughs) to watch it forever. And for whatever reason, just never kept not getting around to it. Uh, So we'll be talking about Parasite uh, in June. So you uh, if you support us for five bucks on Patreon, you get access to that uh, and all the rest of our backlog of bonus content. Let's get to our Academy Award winning patrons. Those who support us for $15 or more a month, and they are Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, Every Guy I Know, Looks Like Matt Damon, and Alina Deletkalova. Thank you all so very much, uh, including our name change patron. That's got to be interesting. I don't think I know anybody who looks like Matt Damon. Maybe they're from Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe every guy in Boston and in the, in, in the Boston, greater Boston metropolitan area just looks like Matt Damon. That's where he's Maybe. from, right? I, 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 I don't think know. He's from, he's from the East Coast. He has to be. It's like all of his movies are about like Harvard and stuff, <laughs> right? <laughs> like sure. all of his like his old movies, <laughs> like his movies. You know, when they were first starting out, uh-huh. him and Ben are both from. No, Ben might be from Chicago. It doesn't matter. I have no idea. Anyways, <laughs> where where do you live, roughly, name change patron? I want to know where everybody looks like Matt Damon. All right, we've got our fan poll follow-up for Radio Free Albemuth. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. So to start off, we do have one comment from our Patreon. Mm-hmm. And also, we are going to start posting polls on Patreon. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Another place to get, yeah. Yeah, I never really thought about doing it, because well, for a long time, you were the only one who posted on Patreon. Right. Uh, so I hadn't really ever gone in and like looked at what the features were, but it makes a lot of sense. So we are going to start posting feedback polls on Patreon, as well as on our regular social media, mm-hmm. and that will be available at all of the patron levels. Patron yeah. levels. yeah, obviously. Um, yeah, we did have one comment this time from Jeff Niederhofer, who was the requested. Uh, who requested Radio Free, one of our Academy Award winning patrons. And Jeff said, "This was great, great fun." And <laughs> thank you, goodness, and you both deserve medals for a valiant effort to explain a complex, if not actually convoluted, plot. 
Although I'm much more favorably disposed to the book than Katie, like Brian, I'm unimpressed with the movie. I agree the book is narratively and thematically sloppy. In its partial defense, the book makes a lot more sense if you read it as the unofficial fourth entry in the <clears throat> Vallis trilogy. Because Radio Free Albemuth was an, abort an aborted first draft that was originally intended to be the first book of the Vallis trilogy, the themes and many literal plot points of RFA are echoed throughout the, the trilogy proper. As a side note, the Vallis trilogy itself is fairly sloppy, to the point that the third book is sometimes singled out as having no connection to the rest of the series. And ironically, despite RFA being a first draft, it's arguably a more accessible introduction to Phil Dickian theology than the actual first book of the trilogy. Wild. But honestly, we don't have to worry about that. all that. This was an, outsta an outstanding episode, <laughs> almost as bizarrely psychedelic as any PKD book. The episode feels like a fusion of this film is lit and good, bad, or bad, bad, perhaps a podcast hosted by the alternate versions of Brian and Katie from the Portuguese states of America. Indeed. Well, thank, thank you, Jeff. I uh, appreciate your feedback uh, and glad you enjoyed the episode, because if you didn't, boy... There's very, very little chance for anybody else, I feel like. Um, it is interesting to know that the that this I can see reading it within the context of the rest of the series might yeah. help a little bit. But it's also interesting that he thinks the this is like the best entry point. Potentially, that doesn't make me want to read the Malice <laughs> yeah. trilogy. I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it. Uh, I've always heard that it's I think Aaron mentioned on one of the episodes he was on that those books are something like they're they're not like most people's favorite <laughs> philip k dick so awesome thank you jeff for that comment and thanks again for re the recommendation on facebook we had two votes for the book and one for the movie uh we did get a couple of comments uh, more so following up to other things that we talked about during the episode matthew said why did they kill the cat that's the question <laughs> But the question isn't mm. for PKD, it's for God. Okay. The hard thing about RFA is that it doesn't really stand on its own. It's part of the Vallis trilogy. Vallis is my favorite novel. I was wrong. But I have to <laughs> I just admit, said it's, I don't think it's anybody's favorite Philip K. Dick. <laughs> my, my mistake. It's Matthews. Um, but I have to admit they're all flawed because PKD believes he had an interaction with a greater intelligence, and the three novels are attempts to figure that out and justify his belief that information was projected into his head. Anyway, in Vallis, PKD's friend Kevin is always talking about his cat that was hit by a car and how that shows the universe isn't fair. Hmm. He says if he ever met God, he would pull out the corpse of his dead cat and ask God to explain it to him. Fair enough. So I guess that moment in the movie is like an Easter egg. A for, bit of a, a yeah, an Easter egg because it doesn't really <laughs> it doesn't really come back at least fr from a first viewing from my memory. It doesn't really come back thematically. Yeah, no. At all. Really, I mean, other than yeah, I don't think it really comes back in the movie very much. But yeah, it could be a little Easter egg. Mm. And again, I think it it still can do a similar thing to what it apparently does in the books if you think about it a lot. Otherwise, it just seems kind of random. But I, uh, what was I gonna say? Um, there was something. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I, what I've always heard is that they're they're a, a weird mixture of Philip K. Dick's acid trips with like yeah. you know theology, and it's a little tough to to muddle through. But apparently, Matthew likes Vallis, which is like the first novel proper, I believe, right I in the so. series. Like it's the the official first. Anyways, cool. Thank you, Matthew, for that clarification. Ian said, "What an episode." Certainly the most confusing one, but still very entertaining. Is it me, or is the movie as comprehensible as a Billy Owens film? No, you're not wrong. The world building sounds like it had a lot of clashing with itself, alternate history with both the Spanish Empire becoming the dominant force and the Nazis winning the war. You're right, of course. It is weird there is zero resistance until songs start being played. Uh, it's ridiculous as saying there was no French resistance until Edith Piaf goes to town singing La Vie en Rose. Also, 
You can snap a cigarette and smoke the unfiltered part, but like many things I've done in my youth, I don't recommend it. <laughs> Your body will not like it. That's fair. Um, and Matthew actually then responded to his comment and posted a source showing that just over 50% of cigarettes were filtered in the early 60s. Yeah. So highly plausible that it was just an unfiltered yeah. cigarette. Say, it wouldn't surprise me if back then a lot, because that was before, right around, or at least right around-ish, or a little bit before the time where we realized how terrible cigarettes were and they started doing things to try to yeah. <laughs> like make them a little less terrible, like putting filters in them and stuff. And so that doesn't surprise me that uh, a lot of them didn't have filters. I uh, I do think that I think I may have misspoken the episode. I actually don't know if in the alternate universe the Nazis won the war. I think he says that as a now I can't remember if that's said as a, a hypothetical that? or or do they talk about that in reference to because uh, that's like the plot of the the man that, in the high that's tower, the plot of the man right? in the high castle. I may have mentioned it in 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 reference to that, or it may be an Easter egg in reference to that. I actually don't know if in the alternate yeah. universe if both of those things actually happened or not. I don't. In the movies, like history, you know what I mean. Yeah. In the movies, like uh, narrative, but because I, I agree that would be a little. I mean, you would if you would think an action like the no Protestant Reformation would have the kind of ripple effects that would mean like probably Nazi Germany doesn't go the same way right. most likely. I, but who knows? Who knows? I mean, the world building was still pretty messy, yeah. regardless. Yeah. On Twitter, we had two votes for the book and zero for the movie. Kelly Napier said, I didn't read the book. I didn't watch the movie, <laughs> but I did enjoy listening to you two My be goodness. confused for two hours. I think I'll stick to Electric Sheep slash Blade Runner for my PKD of choice. And Shelby Suderman responded and said, same, I wasn't a big fan of A Scanner Darkly. And really? knowing how unpolished this one is, I think I'm good. Interesting. Because I think Scanner Darkly is maybe a little more interesting. I have not read to uh, uh, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, but I think there's a lot of interesting things going on in a Scanner Darkly that may be a little more interesting than what's going on in in Blade Runner. I don't know. I like Blade Runner mm -hmm. the film a lot, but uh, I know there's lots of good Philip K. Dick, and 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 again, not. Not that he's the be-all, end-all, but Aaron actually does not like Dwayne's Dream of Electric Sheep very much compared to a lot of other uh, PKD, from what I remember. Anyways, cool. On Instagram... Also, we, I'm really glad uh, you enjoyed that, too, Like, because yeah, really. without reading or watching, that was my fear, was that, boy, this is not going to be good for anybody. Incomprehensible <laughs> yeah. of, of us blabbering. Yep, but good to know that it was enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> entertaining to say the least. At least for some. <laughs> uh, so on Instagram we had three votes for the book and two for the movie. The, the Leap underscore 77 said let's begin with the fact that both are, pol are pe polished pieces of excrement. Usually I go with Dick's written word but I'm going to go out on a limb and go for the movie. It's easily the worst of Dick's film adaptations but it has a good bad charm to it and it made me think I was watching a well-made Neil Breen film. It is a little it, bit. It is a little bit Breeny. It has Breeny moments for yeah. sure. When it gets a little more, um, yeah, when he, he, you know, getting beamed like messages into his head, mm. and it, yeah, it has its Breen feelings for yeah. sure. Uh, I actually remember watching the film and thinking that Breen may have watched <laughs> or like been a fan of this. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me if Breen was into like. Um, some of the trippier Philip K. Dick stuff, but yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. The movie had far too many bras to be a Neil Breen film. <laughs> it's true, but which but it is a Philip K. Dick film, which is surprising because that's uh, also usually a <laughs> that's another thing Neil Breen may have taken from Philip K. Dick is writing at least is <laughs> the boobs boobing boobily. So the pertness, the pertness of, mm -hmm. of, of the boobs and whatnot. But yeah. What were the final numbers? The final numbers were the book mm -hmm. with seven votes to the movie's three. That so, makes sense. Yeah, the, that does make sense. The movie was not good. So. Not particularly. <laughs> not particularly um, And I, both of these, I have gathered, are fairly obscure. Yeah. Uh, yeah but I, I think not, yeah. even the movie is probably more obscure I, than the sure. book. For sure. It's even more obscure than the book. Absolutely. All right. Before we get to The Princess Bride, we're going to learn a little bit about... What makes a cult classic? 
matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So I wanted to chat about this. I thought it would be an interesting discussion topic. I agree. Because I feel like the term cult classic Mm -hmm. is, first of all, pretty vague. And also a term that gets very, like, loosely bandied about Mm -hmm. quite a bit on the internet. Yeah, for sure. So I started out my very official research (laughs) um, by Googling what is a cult classic movie. That's the best way to start any research, in my opinion. You know, I, I like to do my research for this the way that I feel like normal people do research. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so. no, it makes sense. Uh, so I looked at a few different sources, and predictably, I got a couple different definitions. So uh, an article on TV Tropes initially said, a cult classic is a film or other work which has a small but devoted fan base. And Wikipedia then got a little bit more specific with that idea, stating... Cult films are known for their dedicated, passionate fan base, which forms an elaborate subculture, members of which engage in repeated viewings, dialogue quoting, and audience participation. Mm -hmm. So now after that initial definition, um, we go back to the TV Tropes entry, which went on further to say, some cult classics are obscure commercial failures at the time of their premiere, which have since then successfully attracted a fan base. Um, And most of the other sources that I looked at seemed to agree most strongly with this definition, especially the ideas of a film being obscure and not commercially successful. I looked at a lot of sources that stated that in order to be a cult classic, a film has to be considered outside of the mainstream. I would agree. That's the cult part. Like, Mm -hmm. otherwise, it's just a classic. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's not I mean, yeah, outside would, the main, you know what I mean? Like, too, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it's, yeah. Um, I do think both of those definitions are still, like, pretty broad. Fairly, um, fairly broad. Fairly broad. Uh, and looking at other arguments, I saw that most of them argued for different specific definitions. Like, I looked at some that said cult classics were controversial films, possibly even films that were, like, censored in some way at the time of release or maybe violated some kind of social taboo, made people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Others really latched on to the idea of cult classics being so bad it's good or, like, otherwise campy, guilty pleasure films. Mm -hmm. I looked at at least one source that tied the idea of a cult film into the idea of the cult filmmaker, um, saying that the devoted fan base would come about due to, like, specific defining characteristics of the film or filmmaker's style. Oh, man, they're they're all correct. Yeah, that's the thing. They're all all different types of cult classics, yeah. (laughs) Um, And there was one other thing that I wanted to bring up from that TV Tropes article that I thought was interesting, which was this quote. Some cult movies were, in fact, box office successes at the time, but maintained a cult following long after public interest has moved on into the next flavor of the month. Cult classics have an unusual shelf life. Rather than receiving a short but large burst of popularity before ultimately fading into obscurity, cult classics receive a marginal amount of attention almost indefinitely. Hmm. And I, for me, I feel like that last line might be the most all-encompassing, all-encompassing definition. Yeah. They receive a marginal amount of attention almost indefinitely. Yeah, I would agree. And I still think that might be too broad. It's still too broad. but I, with, Especially with the internet being what it is now, I, I think you could put a lot of movies under that definition. Yeah. But I think it, it does envelop kind of all of those different ideas of what makes a cult If classic. you were going to try to boil it down to the most essential, like, yeah. single thing, I think that, you know, like, single idea, I think that does kind of get the closest to like distilling it Mm -hmm. but i think all of the other definitions are each are accurate in in ways that you it's it's way more accurate to like because each of the different cult classics that you can think of may fit into one of those different categories but but i do think they all maybe have in common 
like I said, the thing that distills down and the, the, the you know, the uh, greatest, uh, lowest common denominator, whatever, whatever, mm-hmm. greatest, whatever, you know, and I, uh, the math thing that I don't remember. <laughs> um, not lowest, it's greatest common denominator, yeah. but yeah. between it is, would be that the, uh, what was the phrase? Um, they receive a marginal amount of attention almost indefinitely. Yes, that. I think between yeah. all of the sort of different categories that you described above, that is consistent between all of them. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, maybe we could make a distinction between something that receives that like marginal amount of attention and something that's just kind of like has evergreen popularity. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't consider Jurassic Park a cult classic, True. but yes, yes, because but it does I think kind that's... of have evergreen popularity. Yes, it's the marginal amount that yeah. makes it important because it's just again, Jurassic Park is just a classic. Like, yeah, that is not the cult part. So the, the margin, the cult, the marginal is what the cult is. Yeah. I know. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So here's my question for you, um, because I, I wanted to talk about this on this specific episode, because I do feel like I hear people say that the princess bride is a cult classic. Yes. Do you think that's accurate? No. Uh, I would say that I think that would, would have been accurate at one point in time. That's fair. Is what I, how I would describe the princess bride. I think that would be a label that you could attach to it up until, I don't know what time, what time period I would say it's probably not a cult classic anymore, but sometime probably in the, late 90s early 2000s ish period Mm -hmm. maybe around maybe even later maybe close to like the mid 2000s you know 2000 2005 time period uh when the internet got big i would say around then it probably becomes not a cult classic and it's just a class like a classic at that point Uh, because the popularity got to a point i think ultimately eventually the popularity of the princess bride got to a point where it's not that marginal anymore it's not a marginal audience it is now just a prolific like like, one of the most popular films at least in america i think that and i do have an aggregated a small aggregated list here in a minute Mm -hmm. and i think that there are quite a few on that list that we could put into the same kind of category like there was a point where this was considered a cult classic it had a small group of people that really were really really into it yeah but now it's just kind of memeable yeah yeah well and uh, yeah it's just and, and i think enough people like, especially with like the princess bride enough people have just seen it yeah that it's not and, you know yeah. and, and enjoy it and even not, i don't he, know like, anybody uh, almost nobody you meet it's rare yeah. in america that you'll meet somebody who's over the age of 25 maybe who hasn't seen the princess bride yeah. and likes it and, <laughs> like, I, and i think even even if you haven't seen it it is so well known today that you recognize the references. I don't think that necessarily that by itself, though, I don't think that necessarily stops it from still being a cult classic. I think you need to have seen it. And like a large portion of people need to have seen it and enjoy it. It doesn't have to, it can't just have like become part of like, yeah, meme culture or whatever. I think it can still be a cult classic and be like intertwined with, yeah. Um, the popular, dis, you know, uh, sort of discussion because uh, and my example for that would be a film like The Room. I okay. would still yeah, consider would The Room a cult that. classic in the sense that I think most people probably still haven't seen The Room. Like, you yeah. know, like compared to like The Princess Bride, I think a vast majority of people haven't actually seen The Room. And I think but it's everybody. Most people, a lot of people know what it is, at least. And like are aware of it and again from the memes and 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 that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. but i would still consider that a cult classic whereas i wouldn't the princess bride currently still you know what i mean yeah i would agree with that that is interesting like you brought up the room which makes me think of um that the part of the definition from wikipedia that it's an an elaborate subculture, members of which engage in repeated viewings, dialogue quoting, and audience participation. Well, that one seems like that particular definition sounds like it's like very specifically describing like six movies, mm-hmm. like The Room, Rocky Horror Picture Show, yeah, and like a handful of others. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Makes, like, that makes me that uh, that's interesting to me though because you know you can go to these like mass viewings mm-hmm. of 
something like The Room or right. Rocky Horror, and they're basically like inside jokes mm-hmm. woven into that. But you can also do that with The Sound of Music, which True. I would not consider a cult classic. True. Yeah, and again, I think that, that yeah, that, that the... Again, it, it, it's it's a whole corner. It's a it's a, there's like a, a checklist of things that it has to hit at least like three. Well, it yeah. has to hit at least. I think again, I think the only thing it really needs is is, is the the not a, a small audience over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I think that's like really it. Because yeah, there 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 are cult classics that are like midnight movie type of you know joking and that, but there are other movies. Uh, that are definitely cult classics like The Room, like Rocky Horror Picture Show. But there are other movies like, like you said, Sound of Music that have sort of similar, um, maybe like viewing cultures around them in terms of like joke because they've been watched so many times and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's a big enough, popular enough movie. I, I don't think you can have a cult classic film that won an Oscar. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, we'll talk about it. Princess Bride was nominated for an Oscar. It didn't yeah. win one. Uh, and it wasn't like a main, a major. It was like a ancillary. It mm-hmm. was for best song. So it's not, you know, it's not like a. Huh. Okay. We'll talk about it. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you can be a cult classic and have won an Oscar. I think you can. I think it depends on what the Oscar is. It's, mm-hmm. That's a too hard and fast of a rule. But you can't you have can't like one, one best, best picture. picture. Yeah, like, yeah, or but, you one know, of the big ones. One of the big ones. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think you can be a cult classic and and that have happened. Probably. Yeah. All right. So do you want my list? Yeah. So I didn't have time this week to create an in depth list like I did for our traumatizing movies. Uh, but I did do I, I did a little mini version mm-hmm. of the same kind of exercise. So I googled best cult classic films, and I opened up every listicle on the first page of the results, except for two because they were both over a hundred entries, and I didn't want to go through those. Yeah. Um, so that came out to eight different articles. So this is an aggregated collection of every movie that appeared on three or more of these eight lists fantastic so with uh three different mentions we had blade runner i think it falls into the was once a cult classic yeah, and now I would it's more agree. just a classic eraser head i think that still counts as a cult classic friday like the like friday and friday after next like that friday like, uh, 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 with uh chris tucker and um ice cube ice cube yeah and chris tucker and yeah, that Friday. Yeah. I've never seen it. I haven't either. So I can't I, weigh in. I would say that's also probably a cult classic. I, I'm, yeah. And I, yeah. I, uh, might um, involve me. Idiocracy? Uh, maybe, yeah. I guess so. Office Space? Oh, I think at one point. I would definitely put into that same category. Yeah, at one point, it was a cult classic. It's funny, this back-to-back, uh, what's his name? The, yeah. the guy who made, uh, the guy that's King of the Hill, um, Judge. Uh, Mike Judge did Idiocracy and Office Space. Pulp Fiction? No. Again, <laughs> at one point, maybe. Uh, it also won an Oscar. It won one of the, or was nominated for yeah. Best Picture, I'm pretty sure. But I could see at one point, maybe. Uh, I, I don't know how popular it was when it first came out. Mm-hmm. but Repo Man? I, I don't know enough about that one. Um, I think I've seen Repo Man, and I... I remember not liking it, but if that's the movie I'm thinking of <laughs> with like Colin Farrell or something from like the early 2000s. I didn't write down years because I was rushing through that's this. That's fine. Rushmore. Uh, yeah, I would say it's a cult classic. It's one of the lesser known. Um, what's the director's name? Uh, the guy with the the very distinct style. Everything's center frame. Uh, he did. Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, what's his most popular movie? Probably. Oh, he did. Uh, the one movie we did, the Fox movie, um, Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. Okay, that's a Wes Anderson. I could was blanking on his name so hard. Uh, it's a Wes. You Anderson. said everything was center framed, and that was what I thought. And I was like, surely he's not having trouble. Yes, yeah, I was having Wes trouble Anderson. remembering Wes Anderson's name. Uh, <laughs> he he. That's his. Uh, Rushmore is one of his films, one of his okay. earliest films, and it's. It, I saw it. I watched it in high school film class. It's good, uh, and I would say yeah, because it, it's one that not many people have seen. Showgirls. Yeah, that's a that's a good bad. Mm. Cult classic. The Princess Bride. Yeah, we've we discussed. We talked about. 
They Live? Yeah, I could see that being a cult classic, potentially. This is Spinal Tap? That one's right on the line. I would yeah. say probably a cult classic, but because I would bet most people haven't seen it, but it's also I, yeah, fairly popular. Yeah, I would bet popular. that that's accurate. Yeah. I haven't seen that. It's fairly popular, but it's another Rob Reiner film. <laughs> um, and a movie that I don't know how to pronounce. With Nail and I. With Nail? With, with nail, nail and, and I. I. Yeah, it's a Scottish... Okay. It's an English um, film about, like, drugs and stuff, I think. No, I'm thinking of uh, Train Spotting. But it's a, it's a, it, that is a cult classic. I, I know it's a very popular, like, British, like, comedy kind of, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a comedy. I could be wrong about that. I've never seen it. But it, I, I would say that definitely fits in cult classic. So uh, then with four mentions across these eight lists, we had Army of Darkness. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I would say that fits. Dazed and Confused. I guess it's a little more popular, but yeah, I would still say probably, yeah. Donnie Darko. Yeah, I guess. it also That's one of the ones where it, that rides the line a little bit, because mm. it's definitely way more well-known. Like, most people know what that is. Yeah. I, would, I say most people. I would say a lot of people probably know what that is. I bet most people haven't seen it. So I would say, yeah, it probably fits. Fight Club. No. <laughs> I don't know if that was ever a cult. Cl- I mean, I, maybe. I, I don't know how well it did when it came out and how pop, but it was definitely yeah. nominated for Oscars, I'm pretty sure. I feel like that might be something that, like, feels like it should be a yeah. cult classic, but is it? Maybe it's a cult classic in the sense that there's a whole cult of people who don't understand the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, there's, like, a whole cult of people who, like, completely have, like, the wrong, get the wrong thing from the film. Uh, and in that regard, I, I would agree. But Okay, Heathers? Yeah, for sure. I feel like that one rides the line a little bit, personally. I, I, well, I guess it depends. Maybe it's gender, like, sacred. Like, because I, yeah. I mean, I know what Heathers is, but I've never seen it, and I, I don't really know anything about it, and I know it's very like, popular I, I wouldn't, among a specific crowd. I wouldn't put that in the same kind of category as, like, The Princess Bride or Office Space, but I do feel like Heathers might ride that line, especially recently. Yeah. Hedwig and the Angry Inch. From what I know, that yeah, that probably yeah. makes sense. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's another at one point. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And it was actually the only um, Monty Python movie that was on any of these lists. Which I thought was funny because I feel like that's the one that it's everybody's the only, seen. Yeah, it's the one that people have seen. It would be more, uh, yeah, I think like something like Life of Brian. Or, yeah, or it's so, or more like obscure. Obscure, but still like a lot of people really like it. Because, yeah, everybody's seen. Yeah. I, I say everybody, but, you know, a lot of people have seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The Evil Dead? Yeah, 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 because it was definitely not super appreciated when it came out, I believe. Mm-hmm. I assume they're talking about the original Evil Dead. I believe so, yeah. Uh, you know, I will say, at least with Monty Python and the Holy Grail, maybe it's a... You can... It's a little more arguable in the sense that there's probably a pretty specific subculture that's super into it and, like, cosplays. Oh, for sure, and, yeah. and you know what I mean? And, yeah. and And then, like, dresses up and stuff in a way that most people have like a passing familiarity with it, but aren't like that into it. Whereas something like idiocracy doesn't have that. I would bet doesn't have that devoted sort of like subculture bring up like an interesting question about the way that the internet affects our concept of what a cult classic is. Yeah. Because I do feel like, especially with meme culture, you could have this um, this kind of skewing of, like, how popular something actually is. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the internet skews how popular yeah. everything is. That's fair. And on our last one with four mentions was The Room. hmm With five mentions, we had Clerks. Yeah, I would agree. It's a absolutely a cult classic. I mean, it's a pretty well-known one, but I, I bet... Most people haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I've only I think I've seen it, but I can't remember. Uh, and Harold and Maude. Yeah, yeah, that's also a good movie from my memory. I saw it years ago, but. And then with six mentions, so these two movies appeared on almost every list that I looked at. We had The Big Lebowski. 
I would say again, that's another at one point. Yeah, I used to be. Used to be like when yeah. it before it blew up, and again, right around the probably around the same time. Uh, I think you know what I will say. I think Office Space, The Big Lebowski, and The Princess Bride are very similar, and they probably blew up around the same time. Mm-hmm. And it all it's all around the same time that like Hot Topic, mm. and um, <laughs> you know Spencer's and that sort of places. As well as they be, they get they got super heavy rotation on TV mm-hmm. uh, around like the mid two thousands. Like you couldn't go a weekend without seeing on like Comedy Central or I think TNT or whoever had Princess Bride. Yeah, without you know, seeing one of those. Movies. One of those movies was on almost yeah, every weekend. That's fair. And so I think around that that you know, and and I'm sure that had something to do with rights and whatever. Where yeah, it, they were played. I mean, Office Space, Idiocracy. And the Big Lebowski were played all the time. Big Lebowski a little less so, but... Uh, and The Princess Bride. All of those were played all the time on TV. Yeah. Like, when I was in high school and stuff, you, like I said, I would see it t- two or three times a month. One of those would be on, so... And then our other one with six mentions was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think that still counts, even though everybody knows what it is. I think most people still haven't seen it. I agree. I think it still counts. I think that's one of those instances where a lot of people know the references or like if you said Rocky horror to most people, they're going to know what they're you're gonna, talking about. A picture Tim Curry. Yeah. yeah and but how many people have actually seen the movie and then it gets even narrower yeah. when you talk about how many people have actually like gone to right. a midnight showing yeah. and, and participated a very, a in very that. Specific yeah. and, that, yes, and a very specific a, a and very like specific, dedicated subculture yes, that is, people. that is very unique uh, and 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 regardless of yeah how many people have actually seen the movie turns it into a cult classic I think because I think that's the thing is even if you have I think that can that's another interesting angle I think you can be a movie could be a cult classic even if it has widespread popularity like general po- like people have mm-hmm. seen it if there's a and that's kind of similar to what I said about Monty Python I think if there is a very like a small super like involved dedicated mm-hmm. fan base that like does conventions or you know what i mean yeah. but like in general like you know a lot of people have seen the film and like ah oh, yeah whatever that movie um whereas i like and and in comparison to something like star wars where obviously that's not a cult, like that has the conventions and stuff but it's also like the conventions have millions of people and you yeah. know it's like it's like yeah. the the subculture that participates in it is gigantic um uh, whereas something like Rocky Horror or Monty Python or whatever, the subculture that participates in it is significantly smaller, mm-hmm. and I think thus can still be considered a, a cult classic, even if it is a little bit more well known or like well, you know, well received by the 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 unwashed masses than some of these <laughs> other movies. So. Uh. Have you ever been to a Rocky Horror? I have not. Showing? I'm not sure I'm interested. I don't really like midnight showings. I kind of hated the uh-huh. room midnight showing. I think I've talked about. I don't think I've talked about it on here, but um, I, I, the whole the whole thing just again for the room at least. I was like, ah, I don't like this. This yeah. is it's, it's just a lot. It's uh, it's just a lot. It's just like I, I found it obnoxious most of the time. I think and it's also, a very specific atmosphere. Yeah, and from what I've heard, there's similar, and I, and I know it's. Um, it's all rooted in, in context and, and time and mm-hmm. it's its own thing. But like, I, I, that was one of the things that I found really weird and gross about the room is like, it's a lot of the like jokes are like not even in the room, which is a deeply sexist movie on its own, <laughs> but like the jokes within the subculture are all like really weird and like mm-hmm. gross and sexist and stuff. There's like a lot of like weird shit. And it, I found that really like unappealing. And I've heard that they're similar type of, um, Some similar types of like I have but been to again, I, I have been to a midnight showing of Rocky Horror. It was actually at our local theater, um, like years ago. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't mind going. I won't make you go with me. No, I, I, I wouldn't mind going to like a, a quote unquote real right. midnight showing of it, like at, at a, a bigger theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say. 
Yeah, I think surface level, some of the jokes are like iffy. Yeah, and I, I get I, I it's its own culture that has its own thing. So I'm not saying that yeah. it is. I, I just I think there is more of a context of like queer culture right. with Rocky Horror, yes. which no, I think no, there is a little different. There absolutely is, and that's what I was trying to get at is that they're within the culture of of what the movie is and the people that are you know watching it and what it's definitely different. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and there's actually a really interesting, I don't know, I think I mentioned this before, uh, a podcast I listened to called Queer Splaining. Uh, and one of the, the, the host, not one of, there's only one host, the host of that show, they went to a midnight showing of Rocky Horror and uh, with a, somebody who goes all the time. And the two mm-hmm. of them discussed on this podcast episode, like all of that stuff, like, you know, the sort of different sort of somewhat problematic elements and like, yeah, and all the nuances of it, um, as members of as people p- people that are part of that culture, you know, and have a little bit more, <laughs> more vested interest in what's going on there. So I would recommend if you're if you've been to Rocky Horror, didn't like it or did or whatever, checking out that queer splaining episode. I don't remember what number it is, or it was like a year or two ago. Anyways, that's I'm done talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so if you're listening to this episode, um, let us know on uh, Patreon or on our social media feeds, uh, what you would consider the definition of a cult classic. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not you agree about any of these movies that we've talked about, maybe what some of your favorite cult classics are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Weigh in on the conversation. Absolutely. We would appreciate it. All right. Now it's time to find out a little bit about The Princess Bride, the book. <coughs> I brought you a special present. What is it? A book? This is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. I'll try and stay awake. The Princess Bride is a 1973 fantasy romance novel by American writer William Goldman. The novel is presented as an abridgment um, or the good parts version of a longer work by fictional author S. Morgenstern, who, if you've seen the movie, you're going to recognize that name. Uh, and Maybe. It's not super prevalent in the film. Uh, yeah, that's the fair. grandpa you mentions see, it like once, it once at the beginning. That's I think fair. so. I, I mean, you um, could but, miss it, but, but yeah, yeah, the the idea of it being uh, some other work. Yeah. Um. So so it's presented as an abridgment of this longer work by a fictional person, and then Goldman has commentary, like footnotes that yeah. are a constant throughout the novel. It's really interesting because it's it's played so straight that you can't yes, it's played incredibly <laughs> and it's straight. and it's played incredibly straight and at least as um, on top of that it's woven into the reality of william goldman william yeah. goldman's life in a way that makes it very hard to know what is real and yes. what is not which leads me into my next couple of points there you go um so the the novel includes a couple different narrative techniques uh, including a fictional frame story about how Goldman came to know about and adapt the uh, S. Morgenstern's The Princess Bride, again, a fictional novel. Uh, In his footnotes, he describes how his father used to read The Princess Bride out loud to him, and it became one of his favorites without him ever actually reading it. And then when he revisits the book as an adult, he discovers that what he believed was a an adventure novel was actually a political satire. And his father had been skipping all of that political commentary and reading him only the quote unquote good parts. That's like the preface in the version I have. Yeah. That, that, yeah. We're that both story, reading the yeah. 30th anniversary yeah. version, which has like two different has, forewords. Well, it has two different forewords. And then it has like a preface. Yeah. And the preface is the part that covers that, like him discussing his dad reading it and uh, him finding out, you know, and then abridging it himself or whatever. So this narrator, um, he's named William Goldman, but he's a persona or an author surrogate that mixes, like you mentioned, fictional elements with some biographical details that match the actual author's life. It's actually a really interesting uh, coincidence that we led into this with Radio Free Albemuth because yes. that does a very similar thing <laughs> yeah. where Philip K. Dick is pulling <laughs> real events yeah. from his life and mixing it with, you know. Writing himself fiction. into the book. Yeah. 
Uh, so the book's actual roots are in stories that Goldman told to his daughters at the time, seven and four years old. Um, one of them requested a story about princesses and the other a story about brides. So we smash those two things together. Um, one of not- those children is way more interesting than the other one. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, Goldman has also described the earliest character names as being from this, like, kids saga, um, silly names like Buttercup and Humberdink. Yeah, that makes sense. In the novel's commentary, Goldman writes that he added nothing to the quote-unquote original Morgenstern text, except that he did write one original scene, a reunion between Buttercup and Wesley, but his publisher objected to the addition. Um, He then invites any reader who wants to read this reunion scene to write to the publisher and request a copy. Uh, Many readers did write in and received a letter, but instead of an extra scene, the letter detailed the um, fictitious legal problems that Goldman and his publishers encountered with the Morgenstern estate and its lawyer, Kermit Shog. There you go. Um, This letter was updated periodically throughout the years, and I believe it's now available online. Um, An epilogue was added to some later editions of the novel that mention a sequel, Buttercup's Baby, that was, quote, having trouble getting published because of legal difficulties with S. Morgenstern's estate. Later editions actually did reprint Goldman's sample chapter, uh, the one that we have has has that sample chapter at the end. And 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 there's notes about it in one of the forewords to this version. Uh, The chapter also includes these uh, author footnotes um, where Goldman is outraged to learn that the fiercely protective Morgenstern estate had finally relented to an abridgment of Buttercup's baby done not by Goldman, but by Stephen King. Apparently him and Stephen King were buddies because he comes up a lot in the the forewords to this one. It wouldn't surprise me. They were writing around at the same time. I don't know how far you've read in the... Have you started? Um, no. <laughs> okay. There's a whole part in the forward. I can't remember. So there's a 30th anniversary forward and a 25th anniversary forward. Uh, and one of them just uh, discusses this, the fact that it when he, he goes to, or maybe it's even in just the preface. Anyways, he, he goes to Florin to see the actual uh, original or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's in some library in Florin. And he's able to get in because Stephen King sent like is like yeah. friends with the librarian and like <laughs> is the one who sent him there. And he's like drops Stephen King's name and then the librarian lets him in or something. I don't know. Anyways, it seems like they were friends. Uh, in a January 2007 interview, Goldman admitted he was having difficulty coming up with ideas for Buttercup's baby, stating, I desperately want to write it. I sit there and nothing happens and I get pissed at myself. I got lucky with the princess bread the first time and I'd love to get lucky again. Unfortunately, Goldman died in 2018 without finishing the project. I didn't know that he actually, and who knows if he was being serious, but I didn't know he actually had any intention of writing a sequel. I always assumed that was all just a joke. Whether or not he did or didn't is kind of up in the air. Yeah, because to me it, it seems like it was all, and again from the what I've gathered from the preface to this or the forward or whatever, it uh, he makes some jokes about it. It, it all yeah. sounds like it was never. It was all just, you know, for the memes. <laughs> like it was. <laughs> Goldman, born you know, a little bit later, would have been the ultimate meme lord right. for reading. You know, uh, yeah, it's he's very like trolly in yeah, a way yes. like in in a good way in a fairly good way yeah <laughs> i mean in terms of like the the kind of sense of humor he has yeah. it, i would say in a good way he has other trolly yeah. behaviors that seem less good but <laughs> it, um yeah it, it's a very interesting book if you've never read it yes i would recommend um it's not long it's no it's not particularly long um and it does have kind of a uh terry pratchett douglas adams-esque like with lots of like inserts from the author yeah. kind of a vibe. Yeah, it has a very similar sense of humor, a very dry sort of yeah, yeah sarcastic 
bordering on cynical, not really, I don't know, sense of humor at times. It's, yeah, I would I would also recommend it. I really enjoyed it the first time, and I'm mm-hmm. only a few chapters in, and I'm enjoying rereading it. So, And I um, think the, the, like, kind of frame within a frame conceit of, like, this being an abridgment of a fictional work by some other author is really interesting. It unique. is interesting. It is definitely one of those things that's helpful to know going in, because I could find mm-hmm. it, I could see finding it very, like, I guess I, otherwise you just take it if you just take it at face value like <laughs> and don't think about it too much. You just buy into it. It's still interesting. Yeah. But like it's when you know, obviously, that Florence is not a real place and this is all made up. Uh, it's it, it is a very interesting to see how he weaves that. Yeah. That narrative, this this made up narrative and spins it into his own life. It's really it's it's very different. Yeah. And like you said, it is played very straight. Yes. not once does he wink at the camera. I occasionally like there's like one or two moments. Um, And well, there's actually more moments, I think. Kind of, but they're very subtle. Mm -hmm. Like uh, there's like little again, you almost have to be like in the know. Yeah. To catch where he's winking at you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and learn a little bit now about the Princess Bride, the movie. He's obviously seen us with the princess and let's therefore die. Pick up one of those rocks. Get behind the boulder. The minute his head is in view, hit it with the rock! I was not a sportsman like you. I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder. I'm swapped. The Princess Bride is a 1987 film directed by Rob Reiner and written by William Goldman. The film stars Peter Falk, Fred Savage, Betsy Brantley, Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Chris Sarandon, Christopher Guest, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, Billy Crystal, and Carol Kane. The film has a 97% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 77% on Metacritic and an 8.1 out of 10 on IMDb, which puts it at 244 on the top 250. Wow. Continue to not understand Metacritic. Yeah. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, it was nominated for one Oscar for Best Original Song, Storybook Love, which I don't That's know. the song is that, that plays the over theme? the end credits, yeah. 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 Uh, oh, well, what, does it have lyrics? It does in yes. the end, yeah. But, but it, it's yeah, the it's, same it's the song. Main, like, it's guitar, like Buttercup's yeah. like, theme yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it did win Best Fantasy Film at the Academy of Sci-Fi, Fantasy, and Horror Films. They have good taste. And then uh, <laughs> Billy Crystal and Carol Kane were nominated for American Comedy Awards. Also, it won the 1988 Hugo for Best Dramatic Presentation. Hmm. The film was only a modest box office success, making $30 million against a budget of $16 million. So it wasn't like a flop, but it wasn't. Right, but big, it wasn't like a, a staggering success no, or didn't, anything. it didn't like go, you know, wasn't huge. So Carl, uh, not Carl, Rob Reiner had been in love with uh, The Princess Bride, the book, since his father, Carl Reiner, gave it to him as a gift when he was a child. As he was working on Stand By Me, another film that we've done, Reiner spoke to Paramount about doing The Princess Bride for his next film, but he was told no, and he found out that a bunch of other studios had been attempting to make the film for years with no success. One of those was 20th Century Fox, who had paid uh, William Goldman half a million dollars for the rights in 1973. And now this is 1986 at this point, so it's been 13 years Mm -hmm. they've been trying to make this movie. Uh, Although that fell through after the head of production was fired and then Goldman later bought back the rights to the book with his own money, which he actually mentions in one of the forewords to this version of the book. He talks about how it kept almost getting made and then not. And then he bought back the rights. Uh, Rob Reiner eventually. So eventually the film did move forward into production with um, Metro. I can't remember who ended up making it. I didn't even look at that. I think it Uh, is MGM. It might be MGM. I can't recall. Rob Reiner uh, eventually landed on Carrie Elwes, or not eventually, very quickly landed on Carrie Elwes to play Wesley based on his performance in a film called Lady Jane, which I've never seen or heard mm. of. And I thought this was interesting. I didn't know this. Elwes had read the book as a child and had always dreamed of playing Wesley, but never believed that it would possibly happen. Robin Wright, on the other hand, was cast very late in production, like a week before shooting started. Uh, they had invited Wright to come meet Gary, uh, not Gary, uh, William Goldman at his house, 
and Jenkins recalls the doorbell rang. Jenkins is one of the producers. Or no, she's the cast. I think it's she is the casting director mm. for the film. Uh, the doorbell rang. Rob went to the door, and literally, as he opened the door, Robin Wright was standing there in this little white summer dress with her long blonde hair, and she had a halo from the sun. She was backlit by God. And Bill Goldman looked across the room at her, and he said, well, that's what I wrote. It was the most perfect thing. So there that's you go. Nice. Uh, Wallace Shawn was cast as Vizzini in part due to his diminutive size to contrast with Fezzik. And I don't remember how small uh, Vizzini is described in the book. I don't remember either. We'll get, we'll we'll get, get to there. We'll get there, yeah. Uh, Goldman's first choice for Fezzik was always Andre the Giant, and he mentions this several times in the foreword that he literally like wrote the part with, with Andre, the, Andre Giant the Giant in mind. In mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he did have a backup choice, and that backup choice was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hmm. Uh, by the time the movie was being made, Arnold was too large of a star because originally when they were thinking about doing it back in like the 70s, he was still fairly unknown, and they right. were like, he could do it. But by the time uh, in late 80s, when this is actually being made, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's been the Terminator. Yeah. You know, he's this huge star. So he was way too expensive to play kind of a minor role or, you know, a, a, a secondary role. Uh, some other people that were auditioned for the role, which I thought was interesting. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, hmm. Lou Ferrigno, who was uh, the Hulk back on mm-hmm. TV in the day. And Carol Stroiken, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Most people will know him as uh, Lurch from the uh, Adams Family movies. And is it Lurch, or is that who I'm thinking of? The, who's the tall? Right. No, you're thinking of Fester. Fe- is it Fester? No, Uncle Fester's the short, like, guy. I think it's Lurch. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in the Adams Family yeah, movies yeah, from yeah, the yeah, 90s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah it's Lurch. Uh, he's also was in uh, the Twin Peaks. He's like mm. the the I can't the fireman. I think is his name in Twin Peaks. Uh, he's a very tall, like very thin man. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of looks like Doug Jones a little bit, but taller. <laughs> <laughs> and Doug Jones is already like a tall, thin guy. Um, but and I and I read this in the forward that they didn't like any of them in particular. I mean, Lou Ferrigno's a little beefier, but. Goldman wanted like a giant, not just a tall person, right. but like a big guy, big guy, like a big, huge, like that's a giant. Um, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Carol Streakin are, are both very tall, but not like bulky. big, bulky guys, yeah. you know. Robin Wright and Karen, uh, I thought this was interesting. I didn't know this. Uh, Wright and uh, Elvis were smitten with each other during filming uh, of the film, and naturally this helped their chemistry in the movie. Elvis said that, quote, he couldn't concentrate on much of anything after the first encounter with Robin, end quote. Uh, everybody, I think, has heard this one, but I think it's really funny anyways, and you can watch it in the film. When Count Rugen hits Wesley over the head after they get out of the fire swamp, Carrie Elvis had told Christopher Guest to go ahead and just hit him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Christopher Guest hit him so hard they had to shut down production because Elvis had to be taken to the hospital. He, like, gave him a concussion. Uh, that scene where yep. he clocks him in the top of the head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's the scene, that's the take in the movie because they did it one time from what I understand. Sounds like a perfect take. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Uh, so Mandy Patinkin, uh, Inigo Montoya, claims that he only suffered one injury on set during the entire filming of the movie. And it's from a bruised rib due to stifling laughter during his scenes with Billy Crystal. Uh, he said his attempt to hold back his laughter is super obvious, and there's, um, in particular, a moment in the scene with uh, Miracle Max uh, when he says the line, this is noble, sir, where he's, like, really yeah. fighting back laughing. I feel like I know what he's talking yes. about. <laughs> yes. Uh, and there was also another mention that uh, Rob Reiner li- literally had to, like, leave the set. He was laughing so much during the, yeah. the Miracle Max scenes. Uh, Mandy Patinkin, speaking still of Mandy Patinkin, has said that his famous line, obviously, uh, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. That line is quoted to him several times a day, every day since, the, <laughs> you know, probably the 90s or something like that. And and people ask him, you know, does it get tired? Does it get annoying? Are you tired of it? And his uh, his response is, quote, I'm frankly thrilled about it. I can't believe that I got to be in The Wizard of Oz. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, like th- this kind being in that kind of film where you are, it's it's one of the all time yeah, classics. Positive attitude. Yeah. Which is funny because I've always heard that Patinkin's kind of like a reserved, like the kind of guy who wouldn't like that. Mm-hmm. It seems like from what I, I've I seen of him know. in interviews, he always seems like a little bit more like 
kind of like Harrison Ford, who's like, you know, mm-hmm. they're just not like an outgoing, like, kind of person. They like doing their own. That's always the vibe I got from what I've seen in Patinkin in interviews, but I guess not. This is really interesting. So Christopher Guest, who we mentioned earlier, he plays Count Rugen, the six-fingered man. Um, in real life, he's actually a baron, not a count. <laughs> He is the fifth Baron Hayden Guest of Sailing in Essex in the Peerage of the United Kingdom. That's his title. So he's part of the whatchamacallit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Courtney Cox and Meg Ryan both auditioned for the role of Princess Buttercup. But the first choice for Princess Buttercup, as we mentioned, Robin Wright got cast very late in the process. Mm. Rob Reiner's and Goldman's first choice for Princess Buttercup was Carrie Fisher. That would have been interesting. Would have been interesting. Yeah. I can see it, but also I can't. Yeah. Like, you get one, she's one, there, she's already, she's Princess Leia. Yeah. You got it. You get one. You get one. <laughs> I also just think there's something, like, I get, I get what they're, like, there's, you know, obviously Carrie Fisher has that, like, fire and, like, mm-hmm. that, that Buttercup gets at times, but she's, I don't know, it doesn't quite fit to me yeah, maybe that's in retrospect i mean because it's robin wright i don't know you know after seeing her performance i'm not sure who you would look and be like oh somebody else could have done like she I just could, is buttercup at this point yeah so it's like, no, no totally i could maybe see meg ryan yeah at the time yeah yeah I guess but i I, I, I i don't know i'm having har- a hard time envisioning either her or Courtney yeah, Cox no. in like a period piece. I guess that's part of it. Yeah. Well, but see, it's funny because I mean, Carrie Fisher, I could see Carrie Fisher because she, I mean, she's wearing a, you know, her dress in Star Wars, like the white. Well, yeah. I, I it's think not that's, that yeah. far from. Yeah. It's not that far from type it. of outfit. I mean, it's not anything like a period outfit, but you know, it's a similar-ish look. Right. Uh, and speaking of just like, you know, general behind the scenes stuff, if you want to know more about the making of the film, I assume most of these facts were pulled from this. If I had to guess, I got most of these from Wikipedia and IMDb and other places. But my guess is most of these were pulled from, as you wish, inconceivable tales from the making of Princess Bride, which is uh, Carrie Elwes's book that he mm-hmm. wrote about his time on the set and a bunch of stories about making the movie and that sort of thing, which I actually have a copy of. I just haven't read yeah. a signed copy of. Yeah. Uh, and finally, we're going to talk about a couple reviews. Um, actually, just one. Gene and Siskel, or sorry, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert both gave the film two thumbs up. So they enjoyed it. And that's when it came out. So yeah. they were fans of it at the time that it came out. Which it wasn't, it was critically well received when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least relatively speaking. Like, obviously it wasn't nominated for a bunch of Oscars. But it's also not the kind of movie that generally gets nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Right. Like an action adventure comedy is not, yeah, that's not your uh, typical, yeah. at least, especially not back then. It was much less so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think today it might a little bit, but there be yeah, more but in contention. Yeah, genre films do tend to be overlooked. Yeah. Unless they're like big productions like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but even then, even yeah, then. they have to be, it took until the, well, no, I think all of them were nominated. They have to be incredible. Yeah. Uh, and finally, in 2016, The Princess Bride was inducted into the National Film Registry. And maybe that's the final nail in the coffin for the question of, is it a <laughs> is cult, it a cult film or not? If it's been inducted into the <laughs> National Film Registry, I'm not sure that it is. But I don't know, though. No, because they could induct cult because films they, because, because they're cult, they're films. cult <laughs> films. Yes, I, I know. I thought about that as soon as I said it. <laughs> so maybe, yeah, maybe not. I, yeah, I think even something can be a cult film and get to a point where it's of such a cultural significance right. that they go ahead and induct it. Yeah. No, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Because you could say, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if The Room became a... <laughs> in, a which that would, that would surprise me a little. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, finally, before we wrap up and get out of here, where can you watch it? As always, check your local library. If you have a local video rental store, check with them. But it is available to stream with a subscription on Disney Plus and Hulu. I wonder if it's just a normal Hulu account. When I looked it up, it said it was through Hulu. Yeah. Interesting. Stream with subscription. Yep. Uh, or you can rent it for four bucks on Amazon, Redbox, AMC Theaters, or uh, or, or AMC Theaters on demand. Uh, and or you can watch it on your Blu-ray that you probably have because everybody has a Blu-ray of this movie because we don't have a Blu-ray. Is it not a Blu-ray? We have a DVD. We of have this a DVD. Movie. Yeah, we had two DVDs at one point. I should just order the Blu-ray. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, 
Princess Bride. We're revisiting it in one week's time. It'll be interesting. We mentioned it previously, but it's not going to be a normal episode, obviously, because we're both reading. Yeah. It'll be more like a summer series yes. episode. Um, I also have to re-listen to our episode. Oh, God, I'm dreading it. <laughs> our very first oh, I don't episode. Wanna li- I don't want to listen to it. Yeah. Uh, maybe uh, we should yeah. just listen to it in the car this week. Yeah, we then, can like, cringe together. Yeah, we let's do that's a good idea. Uh, and then you can take a few notes while we're driving. So I'm I'm so dreading listening to that. The oldest episode. The, yeah, the very first one. Uh, I don't even listen to our new episodes. I don't like the way my voice sounds. <laughs> I listen to some of them occasionally. It depends. <sighs> I normally Honestly, wait. Honestly, the only thing I ever revisit is the beginning of the Stardust episode for <laughs> obvious reasons. I occasionally go back. The the summer series ones I will re-listen to. Like, I've, I've listened to them all at least once since they came out. Like, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. Harry Potter, and... Uh, I haven't really... I have not re-listened <laughs> to Twilight yet. Twilight. Not yet. I probably will at some <laughs> point. Um, I re-listen to those sometimes. And there's some other ones that I've like re-listened to, but not, not a lot of them. But yeah. I am pretty excited to revisit this because there's so much stuff we do now that we weren't doing when we first did this episode. I don't like, remember uh, what we did when we <laughs> so. <laughs> well, well we think, didn't do the movie I, nailed it to be specifically fair. Specifically, of uh, yeah, we didn't do that. Um, we didn't do like the poll follow ups. Oh yeah, yeah. Excited to for hear that. people. Yeah. yeah, hearing people. Yeah, to hear people's feedback. Because we didn't it. have an audience at that. Well, I mean, we had people listening, but we didn't know. No. How, you know, we didn't know how much of an audience we had or whatever. So, uh, yeah, that'll be that'll be really fun to hear what people have to say, and and I think a lot of people will have read this hopefully, mm-hmm. um, and obviously everybody will have watched it. So. Most people will have watched it. Uh, so, yeah, I think hopefully we'll get a lot of good feedback, uh, which will be a lot of fun. So, come back in one week's time. We're talking about the Princess Bride. Until that time, guys, gals, non binary, everybody else. Keep reading books, keep watching movies, and, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.